Well, thank you very much, Richard. A number of you may be wondering what a lawyer, or I guess ex-lawyer, is doing talking about justice, um, because clearly the law is there to be manipulated by people like me, or people who maybe were like me. But justice, I think, is something which is very, very important. We've been looking at social action and what that means. And Paul has talked about the kingdom, the biblical basis for us being the agents of bringing God's kingdom into the communities in which we're working. And so as I come to look at social justice and God's justice, that really is a part of that. Um, and it is, I think, is, is something which is important that we understand both what the, the Bible says to us about those things, but also what that means for us uh, in practice, in our own lives, and also together as a body of believers in rugby and the communities where we live. So looking first of all about, uh, at social justice, and many of us will heard, have heard social justice being spoken about. It's something which is there in our newspapers, it's something which is there on the television. But what exactly does it mean? Well, there are a number of different definitions, um, and if we go, could go on to the next slide, but sort of distilling down the various things, wh wh what does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean when we talk about justice is punishment. You know, people often think you know, you're getting your just desserts, that means you're being punished, but it's much more positive than that. So the first thing is fairness and equity. It's about everybody being treated in a way which is fair, and equity is about getting what you deserve. You know, equity is something which often overrides the strict law to make sure that justice is done. The second thing is access to opportunities and rights. And so you know, we live in a society where we have legislation and various other things which purport to give equal access to everybody. But it's important that we do have that access, both to opportunities and to rights as well. We should not have any marginalized classes within our society. But so often you can have something which looks like access to opportunity, but people don't actually participate. And so social justice goes beyond just that, that access, and it means we participate in those things. And finally, redistribution of wealth. It's about making sure that those who are less well-off, less fortunate than you know, maybe some other members of society, are properly looked after. And that's not just a case of, of having a statement, but it's actually redistribution to make sure those things happen. And in terms of society, as I've mentioned before, it's about everybody. It's the opposite to individuality. Individuality means I get what I need. It means I take everything that I can, whereas something which is involved with society and with relationship means everybody gets what they need. Now, it's been very politicized and is still politicized, but I think if you boil it down to those things, they're all things that we can, as Christians, subscribe to. You know, we can see those values in the scriptures and in the teachings that we receive. Um, but what I wanted to look now at what is what God says about justice. You know, if I start with the, the Old Testament, and if we look at the law um, laid down, and in particular we see in Deuteronomy, a significant part of that is the, is the interaction between the Israelites, the, the things which needed to be done to make sure that society worked and worked in a proper way. And we see a number of things. The treatment of the poor is absolutely critical. And right the way through, we see that the poor need to be 
cherished and looked after. We see a prohibition on taking advantage of people. You know, in our society, we say, buyer beware, look out for yourself. Nobody else is going to look out for you. But that's not the case in the law. It's about making sure that people are not taken advantage of. We see provision and redistribution, whether that be to the Levites, whether it be to, uh, to widows, to orphans. There's specific provision within the scriptures. And we see that in the gleaning laws. If you look at the story of, of Ruth, that when you were you know, collecting in the harvest for, from your fields, you would leave enough for those who, who were less well off or who didn't have their own land to be able to come and get and to provide for themselves and their families. The cancelling of debts after seven years. Um, those of you who have student loans, I'm sure that's something which would be extremely welcome. Um, but you know, the idea that all debts go after, after seven years, all your credit card bills go, life would be wonderful. But even more than that, um, Jubilee, every 50 years, land reverted back to the families that had it originally. So people would find themselves in a difficult situation. Sometimes they'd have to sell their family possessions, but it would come back after 50 years. And so that, that, that sense of redistribution, not taking advantage, looking after everybody, was a central part of the law. But we see it throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And if we can look at the scripture in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, which is a, a verse which is well known to many of us, is something which has been used to drive a social movement amongst Christians. And this is what the prophet is saying. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So the first thing we see is mercy, or hesed, which is God's unconditional grace and compassion. That's what we see in terms of God's attitude towards us, but also the attitude that we need to have to one another and to those that we come into contact with. Out of God's grace and compassion, we show grace and compassion to others. And then in terms of justice, the, the Hebrew word is mishpat, which means treat equitably, give people their rights. So not only do we have a thing which is moral, internal, our belief, we have a practical outworking as well. It's no good just believing in justice. We need to do something about justice as well. And then it's expressed through relationship. It's not something that you know, the Israelites had to sign up to a pledge. It's the way that they treated the, the other members that were working together with them. It's not about charity. It's not about charity. It's about working together and having a community which functions. And that word, mishpat, appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. This is not some obscure part of Scripture that we need to look around and see if we can find. It's everywhere. It's shot through the Word of God. If we can then look at another Scripture, Zechariah chapter 7, verses 10 to 12. And in terms of, of looking at justice, looking at helping others, who should we particularly be concerned about? And this is what the prophet says. This is what the Lord Almighty says administer true justice to show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the immigrant or the poor. And we see those four categories throughout scriptures, the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, and the poor. And if we were looking now, we could add in the refugee, the migrant worker, 
the homeless, the single parent, the elderly, the infirm, the mentally ill, the outsider with little or no social capital. As we expand that, we can see how this is a word to us and into our communities. I really enjoyed the videos that we saw, and in particular, um, what uh, Neville and Brenda said about the Monday Club. Uh, my mother goes to Monday Club, and it has been an enormous blessing to her and to us in our family. As my father went through his last illness and died, the support that she received was absolutely fantastic. And so, you know, while I didn't receive that directly, I can give testimony to the way in which you know, those people who are involved in Monday Club, how this church blessed us, you know, even when we weren't members. And so it's a, a fulfillment of what the Bible tells us. And if you go through the Old Testament, whether you look in the law, whether you look in the history books, whether you look in the prophets, if you look in Psalms, if you look in Proverbs, if you look at the life of Job, what he talked about, it is everywhere. These concepts are everywhere in the Old Testament. But how does that affect us in the New Testament? So, um, and again, there are many places that I could look, but I thought the best place perhaps would be the teaching of Jesus. So if we look at Luke chapter 4 uh, and verses 17 to 18, and this is the start of Jesus' public ministry. He's just turned the water into wine at the marriage in, in Canaan, and here he is, and he's in the synagogue, and he's speaking. And it says, unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. So he takes the scriptures from Isaiah, says that to the congregation there, and then says um, that these things are now fulfilled. So what we see with, with Jesus, it's not about an alternative to the law. It is a perfect fulfillment of the law. So the things that couldn't be achieved through sacrifices, couldn't be achieved through the religious practices of the Israelites, including the bringing together of society, in Jesus we see that perfect fulfillment. Now I don't know about you, sometimes scripture is so familiar you can kind of read it and almost miss what the words have said. And I've heard people preach on you know, the way in which the crowd reacted to him and how he then left and what that meant, but without actually looking at what he said. And it's pretty stark. You know, what he's saying is freedom from the captives, release for the prisoners, that God's justice will become perfected through Jesus. Looking then at the teachings, and again, many scriptures that I could, uh, could turn to, but I wanted particularly to look at Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 to 46. And I'm not going to read the whole pack, passage, but just picking out a few. So this is Jesus talking about the sheep and the goats. It's about the division of those who will come into his kingdom uh, and those who will not. So Jesus says, The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. We see that in a number of places in scripture, Jesus speaks in parables. He is not speaking in parables here. The words could not be clearer. They could not be clearer that as we reach out to those who are less well, off or suffering, it is as if we're doing it for him. And if we see people in that position and we do nothing, it's as if we were not doing it for Jesus. Now, we're not justified by what we do. We're justified through faith, faith in Jesus. But we do what we do because we are justified. It is a sign that we are you know, in the household of faith, that we belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me. His grace, freely given, has a transforming effect on me. All of us, his grace should change us. You know, the scriptures talk about being not conformed, but being transformed. Again, there are so many scriptures. The rich man of Lazarus, the widow's might, the rich ruler, carried through the Acts, Paul referred to last week, the epistles, all saying the same thing about the importance of our attitude towards those who are less, uh, who are less well off. So in terms of, of looking at things, how does this affect me, living in 21st century England? And I'm sure, and Richard's already alluded to this on a number of occasions, um, those of us who are English have a warm patriotic glow at the moment, um, which flared up as we beat the Germans and came into you know, even greater warmth as Harry Kane uh, scored twice to, despite the distractors for us to beat Ukraine. And now, uh, once again, you know, football is coming home. Hopefully this time it will be football rather than disappointment coming home. Um, but sometimes you know, those kind of warm feelings or our, our ideas about you know, what being English or British are can actually obscure the kind of society that we live in. So a book that I have referred to on many occasions, this is Social Class in the 21st Century, which is a commentary on the most recent um, uh, survey carried out on social class in Great Britain. And I just want to read a sort of couple of things. And it's talking about those who are less uh, well off. It says, we now turn to a very different world from those of the elite. This is the precariat class who are positioned at the bottom of the social hierarchy. The precariat are the missing people. The precariat recedes from you, and this limits our awareness of social inequity and class disadvantage today. Despite increasingly popular support for liberal attitudes across a range of issues today, there is a hardening of stigmatization of those at the bottom reaches of society. Discriminatory terms such as scum and chav circulate extensively in social media, in school playgrounds, and in streets. 
unfair patronising and mean representation of poor working class people and the places where they live are everywhere in the UK. The working class people are rarely named as members of a specific class, but often known and reproduced as disgusting subjects, usually through targeting, disparaging descriptions of their bodies and clothing. The term precariat was introduced by Gary Standing, who argues that neoliberal policies and institutional changes across the globe are producing growing numbers of people with common enough experience to be called an emerging class. The precariat are people living and working precariously, usually in a series of short-term jobs without recourse to stable occupational identities or careers, social protection or relevant protective regulation. They include migrants, but also locals. This class of people are producing new instabilities in society. This is the England that we live in. We are seeing this increasingly as an emerging class within our societies, and we know that. If we open our eyes and look around, this is the country in which we live, but this is the country that we are Christians in. This is the country in which we want to bring the justice of God and also to bring forth his kingdom. So how can we respond? So the first is as an individual. Um, how does this affect me as an individual? It's very easy to look at how other people should change. But the person it's easiest to change is yourself. And I would say the first thing that we ought to do is to examine ourselves. You know, very often we can think of ourselves in a particular way, which is not necessarily correct. So some time ago I, I went through sort of Teach First and I spoke in an inner city school in Bermondsey in London. And so I stood up in front of them, I was wearing a suit, um, I, they knew I was a lawyer, and I put up a flip chart, said, okay, tell me about myself, who am I, tell me about what, what I believe, the kind of person that I am. And I wrote down all the things that they said. Now, certain things, you know, my participation as a professional sports person, catwalk modelling, they got those no problem at all, as you would have expected. But a lot of other things, they got completely wrong. They judged me because of who they thought I was, what I looked like, and what I sounded like. Diana's sister recently did a DNA test, you know, one of those ones that you can get that, that tells you all about yourself. And what it came back is that, um, and Diana's DNA will be the same, 30% Eastern European uh, Jewish, another 15% Russian and Eastern European, and English, 7%. That explains why she was supporting Ukraine last night. Um, but again, you can look and think, oh, you're like that. Often, we are not like that. And my experience as a lawyer is people very rarely consciously discriminate. And if you accuse somebody of discriminating, they get really upset and offended. But we all discriminate. We all have prejudices, ways of thinking about ourselves, about other people, and those that we come into contact with. But if we examine ourselves, if we look into the mirror of the word, if we make sure that we mirror the attitude of Jesus, you know, who, as we heard from Philippians 2, you know, was humble and didn't see God as something to be grasped, those subconscious attitudes can be his. And so for me, the challenge is, when I look at those more disadvantaged groups in society, 
do I look at them in the way that Jesus did, or do I look at them in the way that that society of social class did? Do I see them as people who are specially deserving of care and looking after, or somehow unmentionable? And then does my social care affect how I live? The next thing we should do is look as a body of believers. And I think there are two elements to that. First of all, those who are part of the body of Christ. And again, we should care for those who are less advantaged, those who have issues that they have to deal with. But it also should be our attitude to those who come through the door. Have you ever been in a meeting or a situation where you've walked into a room and you felt really, really uncomfortable? Have you ever felt like you don't belong? I can think of one particular occasion. I walked into a party and I've never felt so uncomfortable or so out of place in my life. I could not wait to leave that party. Um, And it still is burned into my memory, the experience that I went through. How do people feel when they come into our gatherings? Do they feel that it's somewhere where they can be a part of what's going on? Do they have a place or do they feel uncomfortable? And I'm sure you, like I, have many different experiences of going into churches. Going into churches and being welcomed and blessed feels fantastic. But all too often, that isn't the way that people feel. And instead, they walk in, they're not welcomed, they see that people are in their own social groupings. Again, we should not be uh, like that. Again, Jesus teaches that when we're looking at who to invite, it shouldn't just be our friends and our relatives, it should be those who are less well-off. He said, yeah, everybody invites their friends or their families around, but you should be inviting those people. We are not expecting anything back. And I'm sure what you want for yourself are the same things that I want for myself. I want a home. I want somewhere which feels like home. I want to come to a place where I'm known and loved and valued because of who I am, not because of an act that I want to to put on, and also a voice where I feel I can participate. And everybody coming into this church and other churches, that is what they will want as well. I think if you look around the church, you see a lot of people who the world would see as outsiders. One of my non-Christian friends once said to me, there's a lot of strange people in churches, and that's true. But there should be, shouldn't there? It's like, you know, it, it, shouldn't we be a home for people who are on the outsides of society in the same way that it's like saying there are a lot of sick people in hospital. Hospitals are designed for those people. Churches are designed for those people. And so if we don't see a good representation of people in those groups, it should be something which should be a concern to us rather than anything else then how should it affect us looking into the broader community? So if I could have the next slide. Um, Jesus teaches us we should be salt and light. We should be a city on the hill, not Berlin before the wall came down, a bastion of all that's right in a sea of communism. Through us, all nations are to be blessed. It's a big, big thing. So if we look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, here Paul is saying, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 
We should do God good to those who are amongst the family of believers. And we heard you know, the testimony from Rachel and from Neville and Brenda about that. But it should go beyond that in the same way that Monday Club has gone beyond that. We should do good to everybody. And in terms of who is my neighbour, the example we have is the Good Samaritan, which is, even today, incredibly radical. It's about who we should do good to. There was a sociological study carried out a number of years ago uh, on Princeton theological students, and it was about whether people's reaction was based on their intrinsic belief or the particular situation that they found themselves in. So they brought the students in, got them to answer a questionnaire about you know, what mattered to them, what motivated them. They then asked them to pre prepare a short presentation on the Good Samaritan, which they were then to give in a room which was a short walk away. And they split them into three groups. And some they said, you've got plenty of time to go. Others they said, look, it's getting, time's getting a bit tight. Others, they said, you're running late, you need to get across there quickly. And they had to go down a narrow alley, and they put somebody in there who they, they, they had, um, it looked like he'd recently been attacked, clearly in real distress, to see how the students reacted. 40% uh, of the people stopped. Um, apparently, the alley, alleyway was about four foot wide, so you almost had to kind of step over him um, to get to the, to, to the speaking engagement. Those who had plenty of time, 63%. Those who had no time, 10%. And so these were theological students. Now, you can look at it and think, I would never be like that. Or you could think, Lord, deliver me from that attitude. And when I see that need, even though my own circumstances may appear to militate against dealing with it, please don't let me do that. Um, there's a quote... Um, from, if we could have the, the next slide please, from Tim Keller, which I really, really like. It says, my experience has been that those who are middle class in spirit tend to be indifferent to the poor, but people who come to grasp the gospel of grace and become spiritually poor find their hearts gravita gravitating towards the materially poor. To the degree that the gospel shapes your self-image, you will identify with those in need. You will see their tattered clothes and think, all my righteousness is a filthy rag, but in Christ we can be clothed in his robes of righteousness. Now, I probably have to fess up to being middle class. I am a member of the National Trust and English Heritage as well. But Lord, deliver me from being middle class in spirit. You know, let me have a proper evaluation of myself from where I stand in the grace of God and let that be something which affects the way that I live my life towards my brothers and sisters, but also out into the community. And one final quote. This is from the, uh, the Emperor Julian. Um, it would be fair to say he was not a big fan of the Christians um, in, uh, in Roman times. So he says, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So the gospel spread for many, for, for, for many reasons, but here it was the care that was shown. Um, if you look particularly at young people today, they value authenticity. Um, you know, truth is a slippery concept, but they value authenticity. And you can see with what's happened with our politicians recently, that where you're inauthentic, people don't listen to what you're saying, even if it is the truth. We have the truth, but it's not enough to say, do as I say, not as I do. 
We have to be authentic in the way that we live that out. And as we manage to combine you know, the word and the justice of God with the way that we behave in our personal lives, the way that we behave as a body of believers, and the way that we affect our communities, that will bring the community into our towns. So if I could just ask Adrian and the worship group to come up now. So for me, the challenge is to look at myself. It's not something that you do on a one-off basis, but it's almost like every so often resetting to factory settings. Do I embrace the grace of Jesus? Does that affect the way that I live? How can I be salt and light and affect my communities? How can it be the case that the people that live in and around me find me a blessing rather than either somebody who isn't a blessing or who isn't absent? The great news is we don't have to do it in our own strength, but it's through Jesus, our Saviour. Thank you.